Once I stood in the night with my head bowed low in the darkness as black as could be. And my heart felt alone and I cried, oh Lord, don't hide your face from me. Hold my hand all the way, every hour, every day, from here to the great unknown. Take my hand, let me stand where no one stands alone. Like a king, I may live in a palace so tall with great riches. I don't know a thing in this whole wide world that's worse than being alone. Hold my hand all the way, every hour, every day, from here to the grave. Josh was operating with one arm. I handed him the mic and I thought, oh no, I just ruined that surgery. There's probably 40,000 down the tubes. <laughs> you know how that is these days. Well, anyway, certainly glad you could be here. And again, the men, they had their uh, outing this past week. I think maybe you mentioned, did you just mention it? Maybe I was just out shaking hands with wet little hands. And, uh, and I don't think they just washed them either. But anyway, uh, I'll share with you later. <laughs> but we had a good time out there uh, this past weekend. I was able to get out there Friday night, enjoyed the time there. Man, I tell you what, uh, they've been talking about the food for a long time and really, you know, trying to, you know, kind of encourage guys to come just for the food. But it was worth it. And uh, man, I mean, it was unbelievable. We had a great time. And uh, who ended up winning the fish contest, fishing uh, contest? Chase Campbell. I think. Oh, did he? Okay. 
All right. I, I was going to stay out there and try that, and, but it was a little chilly out, and I usually get in the water and catch them with my bare hands. And so I decided not to do that. And so we'll just go ahead and give Chase's kudos and say congratulations. But uh, anyway, we're glad you're here. Uh, it was a little over 20 years ago, on September the 11th, 2001, that the United States came under attack. Many of us uh, that were there uh, and living in those days uh, remember right where we were as 19 Muslim extremists associated with the Islamic group Al-Qaeda hijacked four airplanes and uh, carried out suicide attacks against the United States. Two of the planes, of course, were flown into the Twin Towers uh, and uh, basically the World Trade Center there right in New York City. The third plane hit the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington. And of course, we know that another plane was heroically brought down in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Over the course of that attack, approximately almost 3,000 lives were lost. And uh, it triggered a major U.S. initiative to combat terrorism. In response to that attack, 181,510 Americans enlisted in the ranks of active duty service. And 72,000, almost 73,000, joined the enlisted reserves in the year following September 11th. So that year, that next year, there were uh, over uh, almost 250,000 people that volunteered for service, even though we were entering into war. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around that, isn't it? Many of these brave service members said that the reason they joined specifically was because of the 9-11 attacks. And it inspired them. It moved them. And here's my thought this morning. They moved. They were moved enough to move. They were moved enough to move. We are entering into our month of missions, and we're going to have our missions conference here in a few weeks. And of course, we've been talking about our international dinner, kicking things off on Saturday, the 15th, I believe. And then we're going to have uh, meetings from Sunday all the way through Wednesday. And, uh, and then on the following Sunday, we're going to be taking up our missions conference, Faith Promise Offering. And I got thinking about Missions Month, and this thought started rattling in my mind, and I thought, have I been moved enough to move? And I got to thinking, how about all of us as believers? I mean, there 21 years ago or so, we saw a group of men and women that were moved enough to move. They literally enlisted into the military. They were willing to put their lives on the line because they were moved to such a degree. Today we find ourselves in a battle with Satan and evil. Our way of life as we know it is under attack. The freedoms we enjoy are being undermined like never before and our liberties being removed in the name of all things, democracy. Satan is wreaking havoc in our homes and our lives in an unprecedented way and the emotional and spiritual health of Americans across this country is at an all-time low in my lifetime. The attacks are relentless. They're unmerciful. And the cost is overwhelming. You know, we recently had a hurricane just this past uh, few days ago down in Florida that just literally devastated the state. It savagely ripped through that, 
that state. And, and I mean to tell you, it, it, it tore some things up, especially down there in Fort Myers Beach. And, you know, that'll be recovered from. Enough time, enough money, we'll never even remember it happened, to be frank with you, unless you lost a loved one. People just move on with their lives and things will go as they were. We've had hurricanes before and we'll have hurricanes again and that's just how life goes, right? Storms come, storms go. Enough time, enough money, enough fixing it up, well, we'll move on. But let me tell you something. This firestorm of Satan in our nation today will not be so easily remedied. Not, there's no money in the world going to fix this problem. There's not enough time to just smooth it over. I wonder, do you find yourself moved at all? By it all? And as believers, you know, we ought to be moved to think that Satan is systematically stealing the faith of the next generation. That ought to bother us. It ought to move us. You know, Darwinism or evolution is no longer viewed as a theory, it's fact. At least in the minds of educators and those that are promoting it and propagating it. We no longer have to convince folks that God doesn't exist, as evolution has argued over the decades. But today, we got to try to convince them that he does exist. It used to be, again, remember, we used to try to convince people that huh, evolution was wrong. And evolution said, no, God doesn't exist. But today we have to try to help people know that he does because evolution has done its job. Satan has truly undermined the creative act of our God. We have a nation of young people being raised in an atheistic mindset. It is the new religion, along with a few other issues that we see taking place in our country today. It's sad. And I just wonder, are you moved enough to move? Am I moved enough to move? We are quickly traveling toward a point where atheism is the new starting line. You knock on doors today, and like I did this past uh, Tuesday night, and I ran into a gentleman that said, well, I'm not an atheist, but I'm not a believer. What's that mean? He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe the Bible's the word of God. He, he doesn't believe anything, but yet he, he's not an atheist. Hold on, but he does believe somehow that somehow, and here's what it really came down to, and I kind of worded it for him. I said, you believe that aliens place some kind of life form on the planet and it ultimately turned into. And he said, yeah. And you say, that's crazy. Nobody thinks like that. You'd be amazed how many people are starting to think that way. It's kind of interesting, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but when you think about the fact that God created three heavens, in the book of Genesis, there's one heaven, but if you'll go through the Bible, you recognize there's heavens now. There's the heaven of our atmosphere, there's the heaven of outer space, and there's the third heaven where he resides. Do you know where Satan resides today? In the second heaven, outer space. No wonder minds are being turned to outer space and the effect and impact that it is having and will have on our world. I think someday when the Antichrist shows up, it will have something to do with outer space 
And, God's, and he's going to use that as a tool. Our youth have been deceived and tricked into subscribing to a new normal today. A normal that excludes God and elevates humanism and self, or to put it simply, Satan. Again, I wonder, have you been moved enough to be moved? Historically, God's people have always been in a battle, haven't they? I mean, there's always been some sort of battle taking place, and in each case, they had to be moved in order to move. Well, we're going to turn to only one example, and you've got to already know what it is probably. Let's turn over to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to see two groups of people, if you will, who were moved. And one group was really small, and the other group was really big. Look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Turn over there if you would. Start at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to read just a couple of verses throughout so that we can kind of capture the the gist of what's taking place and wrap our minds around this thought for just a moment. First of all, in chapter 17, verse 3, we read, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. We see there's a stalemate that's taking place, a stalemate. On one side, the enemy, the Philistines. On the other side, Israel, God's people. There between them lie a valley. Look at verses 8 and 9, and let's look at the stakes. What's at stake here? Verses 8 and 9, And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, and we're talking about Goliath. How many of you have ever heard that particular account? I don't say story because it's not a story, it's an account. And if you use the word story, you and I understand what you mean. But the world sometimes says, no, that's exactly what it is, is a story. No, it's not. It's an account. It's a historical account. This giant of a man stands now in the valley of Elah and he begins to just shout with the top of his lungs to the armies of Israel. And he stood and cried unto the armies, verse 8 of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set a battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man from you, for you. And let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. Boy, the stakes are high, aren't they? We see here this giant who is proposing a a hand-to-hand combat with one of the mighty men of Israel and says, why should all of us die? Why should all the people suffer? Let's just send your champion and me down into the valley and let's fight it out like men and see who wins. And whoever wins, representing their nation, will then take charge and the other will become servant to them. If I win, you'll serve us, the Philistines. If he wins... We'll serve you, whatever. The stakes were pretty high. Their future freedom was at stake. 
We're not talking about just the right to go about their business. We're not talking about just the opportunity to live in a household. We're talking about the right to exist in many cases. A number of them would have been put to death because of their position and their support of Israel and the king. Let me tell you not only that, but the people that would have ultimately escaped that particular death at that time would have been put under such harsh penalty. Their whole culture would have changed. Their world would have changed. Things would have been nothing even remotely close to what they could possibly have imagined. And the fact is, is that if China came to America today and literally physically took over this nation, then we might understand what they would have gone through. Their women, their children, the men, all being abused and suffering and being killed and ravaged. A lot was at stake here. And we note the shock. We say the shock? Yeah, look at chapter 17, verse 23. We know of this, I said, this little group, what well, was one young man. We know his name to be David. There he arrives at the camp, and while he is there, the champion of the Philistines can be heard. In verse 23, and he talked with them. Behold, there came up the champion, the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were so afraid. Hey, listen, I'm not making light of fear. This idea, well, I wouldn't have been afraid. Yes, you would have. You'd be an idiot not to be afraid. You'd have to be out of your mind. You wouldn't have to have any common sense. The guy's 10 feet tall almost. Probably weighed close to 600 pounds. Double Shaquille O'Neal. And then tell me you wouldn't be afraid to face him in the, the valley. A spearhead that weighed 30 pounds or more. Come on, who are we kidding? I don't have a problem with the fear, but notice they didn't even stand to watch him. They took off and hid when they heard him. Again, in all the men, verse 24 of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him. They saw him and they fled from him. I'm sorry, they saw him and fled from him. They were so afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up surely to defy Israel? Has he come up and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David's like, yeah, you know, I was peeking around the, the, the bricks too. I, I got around the rocks and I saw that dude. He's huge. They said, this is what will happen to the man. It takes him down. And David spake to the men, verse 26, that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy his armies, the armies of the living God? Verse 29, And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? David looks out over that valley. He sees that giant. And here's the men fleeing and finding cover. They're fearful. And David probably kind of went back with them. And he's like, guys, what's going on? You, 
But you, what? You hear what he's saying about Israel? You hear what he's saying about God? Eventually he comes to the point where he says, you know what? That has moved me to the point where I am moved. I cannot sit back and watch and listen to this big mouth rip on God, our God, the most powerful God, the only God. I cannot continue to allow him to rip on Israel, my nation, my wonderful nation. I got to believe David was a nationalist. He believed in Israel. He did not want to include the Philistines in the blessings. Sorry about that. I saw it throw it in. There's nothing wrong with loving your nation. He loved his nation. How can you stand by and listen to him put you down and your God down? And boy, I'll tell you what, it moved him. He said, is there not a cause? What he's saying is, is that I've been moved enough to be moved. I've been moved enough to move. And we know the rest of the story. We know that ultimately David did go down into that valley and with five smooth stones he took one of those and loaded it up in his little pistol. Man, he launched that thing and hit him in the forehead and that old giant fell forward. They could have felt the earth shake when he hit the ground. He ran over there and said, man, I ain't got a sword. What am I going to do? All I got is a little pocket knife. How am I going to sever that dude's head with a little pocket knife? He pulled out that sword of Goliath. and Man, he had to kind of get it up there because that was a heavy sword. And he got it up there and he let the weight fall down on it and off come his head. He picked up that head. I can only imagine David picking up his head. Now, he's a strong guy. I know he had to be a strong young man, but I'm sure that head was weighing pretty heavy. And he picks that old thing up, blood's gushing everywhere. He's holding it up. <laughs> Don't think you'd be half nuts by the time you just cut a big giant's head off. So I'm sure he didn't act like that. You don't know what he acted like. Man, after you get done doing that, He was moved enough to be moved. He was moved by the blasphemous attack of Goliath upon both Israel and God himself. Now here's the thing, and I thought about this too. The truth is, it probably isn't really, are you moved enough to move? But sometimes we probably ought to think it from this perspective. What moves you enough to move? You know, because what I found is I told you there were two groups of people in this battle. Do you know what I found? The next group, the next group, they got moved after he took his head off, after the victory was won in the valley, after the enemy started running away. Then they got all courageous and then they got moved to move and they took themselves their spears and their swords and their, 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 their shields and they took off chasing the enemy. But they didn't get moved till after he had killed the giant. Something moved them to move. You know what? The truth is, every one of us are moved by something. That's really the truth. 
We're all moved by something. You know, there are a number of causes that move us today. A number of things that move us. We're moved by love or the pursuit of it. I still remember years ago, a group of us took a trip to Mexico. And there we met with one of our missionaries, Brother Runyon. Brother Runyon was a very unique man. He was unusual, very different, and yet God used him in such a mighty way. He just had a heart and a love for people, and he just wanted to see God do great things. And man, I'm going to tell you, the ministry that God allowed him to, 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 to grow and to build, my goodness, it was amazing. I mean, they were church planners. They were using local pastors, I mean, local men and women. They were using natives, if you will, to their country. And they would see people get saved in those churches. And then they would take those people and train them. And then they would send them out to start and plant new churches. And churches that were starting were growing and God was blessing. And the truth was is that these men that he took, man, he would take them for maybe $300 a month and Full time, they served the Lord every month for $300 a month there in Mexico. And, and, and the American missionary was costing at the time $5,500 to $6,500 a month. And these men were on the field serving the Lord and winning souls and building ministries for $300 a month. And Brother Runyon, he continued to invest and he found churches to invest. And those men were being trained out of these different churches, especially one over there in Mexico. And out into the whole country, they started churches. And eventually, he found his way into the Philippines. He found his way into Egypt. And he started starting churches the same way around the world. We took a missions trip down to Mexico and there we met with Brother Runyon and some of those that were serving with him directly, a fellow by the name of Victorio especially. And we flew into Mexico City where we were warned to be very careful because at the time Americans had been kidnapped and held for ransom. You say, well, that's kind of the way it is now, right? It's always that way in, third, in countries that are very poor. Nothing's changed. It's always the same. Don't get me started on all that. We all went there. While we were there, man, we had opportunity to say, see the tremendous work that was taking place. It's amazing what God was doing. A number of churches had been started and God was reaching huge numbers of souls. It was just amazing. And, and with us on that trip was one of our young men. And uh, a young lady over there had caught his eye and she had agreed to continue to correspond with him. Now, she spoke virtually no English. He spoke no Spanish. But the sparks were flying from his perspective. <laughs> he wanted a wife. And boy, I tell you, he saw something he liked and thought that he would go after it. So, it'd be just a few months later, if that even, that I found out that this young man had caught a flight to Mexico City in order to meet back up with this young lady. The problem was, when he arrived at the airport, he had failed to arrange any pickup. So there he is with bright red hair, skin white as snow, and an American placard written all over his forehead and face. 
And remember, it was very dangerous in those times in the airports and around major cities because of the activity, this activity taking place of literally taking captive Americans and then trying to sell them for ransom. And he laid or stayed in that airport all night by himself. (laughs) You talk about dangerous. He ended up staying a few days there. He did eventually get picked up by Victorio. And he stayed a few days and he returned. But his flying days were over. And he moved on to the next option. Let me tell you, love moves us. We do dumb things in the name of love, don't we? Crazy things. We do courageous things even though, don't we? For love. Oh, love moves us. Many times love moves us enough to be moved. What else? We're moved by money. We're moved by money, aren't we? Just four months after marrying her firefighter husband, William Walker, Aloma was her name, she asked her then 17-year-old daughter and her daughter's boyfriend to find someone to take her husband's life. Just four months being married. You say, why would she do that? Well, she wanted to collect the $100,000 insurance money. But things didn't turn out quite like she had planned. Yeah, William was killed. Oh yeah, they did that job. He got it done. But to her chagrin, he hadn't changed the beneficiary on the insurance policy from his ex-wife's name before being killed. So it was the ex-wife who ended up getting the payout. And after being found guilty of aggravated murder and conspiracy, she was sentenced to life in prison without parole. She was moved. And it moved her. Moved by money. Moved by love. Moved by lust. Moved by desire. We are moved. The question is, what are we moved by? What are we moved by? Is it your job? Is it your house, your property, your things? Is it just a relationship? Is it just your family? Your family moves you. Okay. You say, there's nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. If it's in its right place, if the priorities are right. The other day I was talking to my wife and I made a statement. She said, boy, that's a really good statement. And I thought, if she thinks so, I'll save it. I said, you know, it's interesting how many people want to tell us how right they are with the Lord and how spiritual they are, but their priorities are not aligned with the Bible have the wrong priorities, but they say they're spiritual. So you can tell someone's spirituality by their priorities. She said, boy, that's really good. You know what? I thought about it, and you know what it is. Because you know why? It's true. See, we're all moved. The question is, what moves us then? Again, so many things move us, but If we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, let me ask you, what moves you? 
There is a cause and there is a battle that, we ought, to, to, that ought to move us today. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, turn there, would you? And honestly, we're, we're almost done. We really are. I'm, I'm, I'm closing in. But look what it says over here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I'll have one more, one more real verse to look at, and then we'll keep moving along here. We'll be finished. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Many of you may know this by heart. If, uh, I, it's in our, our memory verses for the year, and, and so you probably have memorized it. I know a number of you are trying to do so, and I hope you will. Those are good priorities, by the way, memorizing Scripture. Good priorities. For a spiritual person, it's really important to memorize Memorization says that you're really trying to be spiritual. You say, so if I'm not, I'm not? Well, you tell me. But I do know if you're trying to memorize Scripture, it's probably evidence that you're trying to be spiritual. I'm just saying that's probably. Now, you may be doing it for the wrong motivation, and you could probably point to one person in your lifetime that did, but I'll point to a hundred of them that didn't and still learned it because they wanted to be closer to the Lord and know the Word of God better. I know I'm being cynical, and I've got to stop being that way. We get enough of that in the world we live in, don't we? Notice in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And I want you to focus our attention. We know there's a battle, right? We're very confident of that. We understand that. Nobody needs to tell you that. You know that already as a believer. But I want you to notice the statement at the end of that verse. It says, seeking whom he may devour. Seeking whom he may devour. He's seeking whom he may devour. Does that ring with you a minute? For for just a moment, think about that. Because sometimes when we read the passage, I don't know that we focus on that statement. Oh, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is rolling. Walk about seeking whom he may devour. Can I tell you whom he will devour? We already know. We don't have to guess. You say, well, who? Well, let's see. Hmm. How about the unsaved? You're going to devour them up good. We already know that. Don't have to pray about it. Don't have to ask. We, we know. The Bible tells us. The unsaved. Hey, if you're lost today, can I tell you the devil's going to devour you? You know what he's going to do? He's going to chew you up and spit you out. and You're going to end up in a place called hell. And forever and ever and ever, you are going to be without Jesus Christ. Do you realize how serious this business is of salvation that we talk about or being born again or being regenerated? They're all those words for the same thing. Do you understand how important it is that you come to Jesus Christ while you have an opportunity that you ask him to forgive you of your sin and to come into your life, that you recognize how wicked and vile and wretched you are without him? It's so imperative and important you understand it because you will be devoured. Oh, it's not a matter of if, it's when. He seeketh whom he may devour. He's out walking around, he's looking, he's going, hmm, can I devour that one? Eh. Can I devour that one? Eh. Can I devour that one? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I get that one. You say, well, who else are you going to devour? Well, for the sake of time, let me just round up on it, all right? Yep, those that are unsaved. But can I tell you the next group? And this encompasses so many aspects of the Christian life. But those that are saved, 
but not surrendered. You're going to get devoured. Simple. Simple. He walks around, he, he looks over and he says, hmm, there's a Christian that's not surrendered to the Lord, fully given to Christ. Hmm, yep, got him. Got her. He's seeking whom he may devour. Oh, he doesn't have to look far, does he? All he has to do is see that unsurrendered Christian and he goes, there's one. There's one. Nope, not that one. <laughs> They're all in. I'm not going to waste my time on that one, but I can get that one. That one's teetering right now. That one's lukewarm right now. Oh, there's another one over there that's just flirting with sin a little bit. I think I'll, yeah, I can get that one. That's what he's doing. Turn to Romans 12.1. Going along with this thought. Have you been moved enough to move? And what really moves you? What moves me? Well, there's that show on TV, I never miss it. So you're moved enough to move. Right? I mean, let's be honest. You're moved. Well, I, I, I go to every single one of my children's football games, basketball games, soccer games. Well, you're moved enough to move. I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm just saying that you're being moved because it's moving you. You're putting it on a schedule. You're doing that instead of something else. You've obviously been moved enough to move. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Again, we understand the context of the passage. If you've been around for a number of years here, we did a whole theme on this verse, and I took time to break it down, but I'm going to very quickly summarize it. And the fact is, is that the writer spends the first 11 chapters of Romans pointing out the unprecedented mercies of God in our lives as believers. You say, what do you mean? Well, his salvation. He addresses the fact that we're all sinners early on in the book. And that he talks about the salvation of the Lord. And despite our wretched and hopeless condition of sin, he saves us. That is mercy and grace. His sanctification he addresses and deals with in the same book. He separates us from the world and the condemnation of sin and in turn separates us unto himself for his calling and his service in our lives. And then we see the glorification. In those same 11 chapters later on in those chapters, we see the glorification, the eternal hope and glory that awaits the saints of God in Christ Jesus one day. We see His salvation, His sanctification, the glorification that is ours as a direct result of the mercies of God, not because we have earned it, not because we deserve it. We're not entitled to His mercy or His grace, but He extends it to us willingly. So the apostle in Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the length, the depth, and the breadth of His love. Remember! I pointed it out the first 11 chapters. And now, based on those 11 chapters and the wonderful mercy and grace that God has extended, 
I'm now crying out and I'm challenging you and I'm commanding you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. After all that he's done for you, how can you call it a sacrifice to give your whole life, body, and future to him? That's a reasonable service. When you think about what Christ has done for you, it ought to move you to move. Well, I'm going to go out for ice cream tonight, and I can't wait. And that's good, and I'm glad you're excited about some ice cream. But friend, what about what Jesus did for you? Man, that ice cream will change the direction of your life tonight. You'll take a trip down that direction instead of going home because of an ice cream cone. What will you do for Jesus? Have you been moved enough to move? Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Have you been moved enough to move? You know, one of those 185,000 soldiers who enlisted in the active military following the terrorist attacks on 9-11 was a man by the name of Patrick Daniel Tillman, Jr., Tillman played college football at Arizona State. What Pat Tillman lacked in physical size, he more than made up for in his intensity as a linebacker on defense. He led, the Arizona, he led Arizona to the 1997 Rose Bowl after an undefeated season. He earned three consecutive selections to the Pac-10 All-Academic Football Team, a first-team academic All-American honor, as well as the NCAA's Postgraduate Scholarship for Academic and athletic excellence. <clears throat> Follow his, following his collegiate career, Tillman was drafted by the Arizona Cardinals in the seventh round. That's, that's a long ways down in the draft. The 1998 draft, seventh round pick, the Arizona Cardinals. Oh, many people doubted his ability to be a starter on the Cardinals. They doubted his ability, maybe even to make the team, but on opening day, Tillman was starting safety. And he broke the franchise record for tackles in 2000 with 214 for the year. That's a lot of tackles, folks. He exceeded all expectation. He was a shooting star, my friend, a star on the rise. Tillman's NFL career didn't go to his head, though. <laughs> it didn't cause him to compromise his principles in any way. He still drove that old, beat-up pickup that he had in college every day to practice. In the off-season, he challenged himself physically with marathons and half-Ironman triathlons while pursuing his master's degree in history from his alma mater, he volunteered with boys and girls clubs, the, the March of Dimes, and he read and talked to students in schools across the Phoenix Valley. Tillman. <laughs> the day after 
the attacks of September 11, 2001, Pat told a reporter, at times like this, you stop and think about just how good we have it, what kind of system we live in and the freedoms we're allowed. A lot of my family have gone and fought in wars, and I really haven't done a darn thing. In the spring of 2002, Pat married his high school love and sweetheart, Marie. And upon his return from their honeymoon, he announced to the Cardinals that he decided to place his NFL career on hold to enlist in the U.S. Army with his brother Kevin. The decision, of course, shocked many, and it garnered national media attention, even though Tillman wouldn't talk about it. He refused to speak publicly about the choice. Pat and Kevin joined the U.S. Army that July. They committed to a three-year term. They were assigned to the 2nd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment in Fort Lewis, Washington. They served tours in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003 and in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom in 2004. On the evening of April 22, 2004, Pat's unit was ambushed as it traveled through the rugged canyon terrain of eastern Afghanistan. His heroic efforts to provide cover for his fellow soldiers as they sought to escape from the canyon led to his ultimate tragic death. Can I tell you, Tillman had been moved enough to move. He was moved enough to place his life, his marriage, and financial success on hold. He was moved enough to put himself in harm's way Have you been moved enough to be moved? Has the sacrifice of Jesus Christ moved you to move? Or are you content to sit in a pew and soak and sour your whole Christian life? Are you willing to get into the battle? Doesn't the onslaught of Satan and the attack that we face today move you to move? Around the world, souls are crying out for someone to come and tell them the truth. But can I tell you, you don't have to go around the world. You just have to step outside the doors of this church. Will you be moved by what Christ has done for you? and the need that he shares with you and I today. Oh, something's going to move you, right? Something will move me. The question is what? Tillman literally gave his life for what he believed. And what he believed caused him to be moved to the point of even death. What about you and I? We call ourselves Christians. We say we're born again. We say we know when we'll spend eternity. We're not afraid of death. God's not asking you to die physically, is he? He's asking you to die spiritually. He's saying, 
As we saw in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's time you and I get moved enough to move. It's time we remember all that God has done for us and the debt that we owe Him. And we allow our lives to be changed, the direction to be turned, the priorities to be realigned for His glory. Father, we come to you. We ask, dear God, you'd help us now today to surrender our lives to you. In this crowd today, there may be a number of us that need to just once again re-surrender. To just once again come to an altar and say, Lord, I've systematically kind of taken back some pieces and parts along the way. I've reprioritized my life to some degree. It's time that I am moved enough to be moved for you and your purpose and cause like David did. Help us, Lord, we pray. Father, for the soul that's lost, the devil is going to devour them if they don't come to Jesus Christ today. We're going to close in prayer in just a moment, Lord, and when we do, I'm asking you to bring such great conviction on hearts and minds that anyone that's here without Jesus, your son, that they would see a need to confess their sin and to turn to Jesus as their Savior and Lord and that they would call upon Him before they leave here. Be glorified now, Father, in what will take place here. May every believer, Father, recognize the need to surrender all, to run up the white flag and surrender all to You. Lord, may we be moved enough to move. We'll thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.